thank you for just this teaching, your spirit, Lord, leading and guiding. Help us to really hear it, understand it, and really apply it in all that we say and do. Not just talk about it, but to really go deeper in you and your name. Amen. Dustin, can you put that, that slide up there? I've got a couple verses here that I'm just going to leave up the entire time we teach. And it's the basis of what we're doing. This is out of Hebrews chapter 2. And I know there's some long verses, but I wanted you to understand them. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, remember, is a fancy word, appeasement for are the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. Please remember this. Jesus Christ came down in the form of a man. He needed to be made like his brethren. That's us. In all things. So therefore, as a faithful high priest, he can relate to us. We can relate to him. He has been tempted. He has suffered. So therefore, he's able to aid and help. I am not against you going to human beings for the scriptures and comfort and prayer. Understand that as part of the body of Christ. But ultimately, our job is to point people towards Jesus. He is the great comforter. He is the Prince of Peace. And we want to point people towards Christ as much as possible. Because I may be able to look at you and say, yeah, I know what you're going through. But sometimes I don't know what you're going through. I may not fully understand. I may not fully see. I may not fully get. But Jesus Christ does. So keep that verse in the back of your mind. And then Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted, tested, as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Please note, throne of grace, not throne of judgment, not throne of condemnation. Throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're going to talk about two events in Christ's life here tonight. One is his baptism. And the other one is his time of temptation in the wilderness. He did these things to be able to identify with us. And so therefore, we can go to him because he has been tested as we are tested. He identifies with us. He came down in the form of a man. So often when we have this idea and this picture of God, we put him in almost this unapproachable light. But through Jesus Christ, we have the intercessor. We have the person that became like his brethren, that he's a merciful and faithful high priest. So therefore, whatever you are facing, he understands, he sees it, he's walked it, he's been there, he can help you. So baptism and time in the wilderness, it's there to identify with us. I ask you to go to Philippians chapter 2, please. We're going to keep this up to make references back. Take a look at Philippians 2 with me. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. We have a tendency to read verses like that and kind of just skip over it. I really understand that verse. Have the mindset of Jesus. What was the mindset of Jesus? I'll wash people's feet. I want to point people towards the glory of God. I'm here to help people. There is not a selfishness in Christ in any way whatsoever. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in my marriage. I see it in my kids. I see it in my family. I see it in the church that I pastor. Selfishness. We're all fighting for a piece of the pie. We're all fighting for attention. We're all fighting for glory. We're all fighting for people who don't respect me enough and thank me enough and like me enough and love me enough. Boy, have the mindset of Jesus. I'm here to wash feet. I'm here to love others, not to look for love. I'm here to love others. Verse 6, who being in the form of God, do not consider it robbery to be equal with God, because he is God. 
but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. We have a tendency to kind of overlook these verses because we really don't think it's a big deal to be a human. It's not a big deal to us. We're humans. So therefore, when I look at other humans, I understand everything you go through. And I don't think you're that dirty, that gross, that strange, that weird, because we're a human being the same. You have to look at this from the perspective of God. God came down in the form of a man. He lowered himself. There is no way to make an equation in our mind to fully grasp this and understand this. We can make humorous examples. I can look at earthworms and say, oh, I love earthworms. Make me an earthworm so I can minister to the earthworms. That is, I mean, this doesn't even make sense. God, in perfection, glory, and holiness, said, I'll become as a man to love them, to die for them, to show them service. That's what I see in the baptism, and that's what I see in the time in the wilderness, Jesus identifying with us. So with that introduction and with that reminder, let's jump back now to Mark chapter 1. Please remember when we started our study in Mark last week, we said Mark is a very unique gospel. He doesn't start out with a birth story. He doesn't start out with genealogies. Mark is a quick, fast-moving gospel. It focuses more on actions than words. Mark 10 says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And that's what you see here in this gospel, is this idea of God saying, I want to represent serve. This word immediately, you'll see it in verse 10, you'll see it in verse 12. Nearly 40 times in the book of Mark, it says immediately... Jesus is on the move. If you remember correctly, we showed that map last week of the literally thousands of miles that Christ walked in his life. He was not rushed. He was not hurried. He was never saying, oh, I'm so busy. Can you imagine running into Jesus 2,000 years ago? How's it going, Jesus? Oh, I can't talk and I'm so busy. No. He had planned. He had purpose. He was prayed up. He was ready. But he kept moving forward in the Lord. So, this is a book of action. So what you see here in the baptism and what you see here in the temptation, they take a very complex thing and they really just kind of do a couple verses on it. So we'll fill in some details as we go. But verse 9. came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It's fascinating to think about that. I, I don't know who's been baptized here. I remember one day I got baptized. Uh, it was one of the greatest days of my Christian walk. I absolutely love baptism. Baptism service is one of my favorite services that we do out here. And every time we do a baptism service, Rich and I would stand in the pond there once it's all done or in the pool or wherever we're at, and we would look at each other and say, it's amazing how simple and quick this, it is. It's somebody coming forward, publicly confessing their walk in relationship with Christ. If they want to share a testimony, that's great. Then they go into the water. And we tell them, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we talk about the symbolism of going in the water and coming out of the water. The idea of going into the grave, dying, coming out, being washed anew. Richard always likes to add another attribute to coming out looking like a drowned rat. It teaches you humbleness. I mean, you're in front of a hundred people going in and coming out. I love baptism. Absolutely love it. And if you have not been baptized, I encourage you to prayerfully consider it. It's a wonderful public proclamation of your faith. And if you have been baptized, I hope you look back on that as a great time for it to say, I publicly declared my allegiance to Jesus Christ. 
Now, baptism, Jesus identifying with us, us identifying with Jesus, it, it reminds me a little bit of almost when you would decide to wear a sports jersey. You are identifying yourself with the team. You are saying, I follow this team. I cheer for this team. I like this team. When you get baptized, you are publicly identifying yourself with a follower of Jesus Christ. That's a huge deal. The enemy will hit you. Anytime we do a baptism service, I always say this. Pray for the people getting baptized. We've started now putting their names in the bulletin or on Facebook so people know I'm going to pray for these people. If any of you have been baptized, you know what I'm talking about. You will be attacked by the enemy. Every time we have a baptism service, I'll get about maybe a dozen people that want to get baptized. And as we get closer and closer to the baptism, some people can't, don't. And I'm not saying that judgmentally or picking. The enemy, I think, just starts picking them off a little bit. It's a battle to get baptized in some ways. And if you thought, well, you know what? It's not a battle to get baptized. I'm telling you, after you get baptized, it's going to be a battle. Because you just publicly confess Christ in front of the world, and the enemy is going to say, oh, you want to live for Jesus now? What happened to Jesus as soon as he was baptized? Jump ahead, 12. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Remember what Christ made abundantly clear in the Gospels. If it happened to me, it's going to happen to you. After his baptism, I think when it says in 12, immediately, I think that's immediately. Look at 11. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. It's going to happen. So all that to say, hey, if you want to get baptized, let me know. Um, it's a great way to publicly proclaim your faith. We do baptisms now out here. Uh, we set up the watering trough. We heat it. And if you want to get baptized, we'd love to have you. If you want to make that public confession of the Lord, you just let us know. But let's go back now and break this down a little bit. Take a look at verse 9. I want you to focus on 9, the humanity of Jesus. There is no deity in nine. Now, don't think I'm making a theological statement. Just look at verse nine. Came to pass in those days that Jesus, his human name, came from Nazareth, his hometown of Galilee, the area of where he lived, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Baptized in the Jordan, a dirty river with dirty people getting baptized. If you did not know who Jesus was, and you're just one of the people watching all the baptisms happen. John kind of had like this little mega church ministry going on. And people are lining up to get baptized. In fact, it says that from Jerusalem, they were sending out leaders from the temple to say, go find out who John is. We talked about this last week. Are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? So there's a crowd watching these baptisms. And if you're just sitting there in your lawn chair watching these baptisms, there is nothing special about Jesus at this moment. Nothing. He doesn't glow like the paintings show. He doesn't float on the ground. We know from Luke chapter 3, he's 30 years old at this time. He's going to look like a 30-year-old Jewish man. Probably a pretty thick beard, because that's what the Jews did. So he shows up, and he's waiting his line to get baptized. Now, we know from the other gospel accounts that when Jesus comes up to get baptized, John says, whoa, wait a second here. I'm baptizing you? You, no, 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 no. You, you should be baptizing me. John knew who Jesus was, but for the regular people watching, we wouldn't have known at this time. We wouldn't have seen anything special. And to be quite honest, we don't know if we would have heard that conversation real well. So Jesus then says in Matthew, he says, permit this to be done to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus says, this is something I need to do. 
Now, everybody else was getting baptized because they were publicly confessing their sins and repenting in preparation of the Messiah to come. Jesus had no sins to confess, no sins to repent of. He still went through baptism to identify with us. Remember, we have a high priest that had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God. For devotions, we're going through the book of Luke at home with the boys. And we're talking about Jesus getting circumcised, eighth day, just like every other Jewish boy. Jesus going to the temple, just like every other Jewish boy. He went through it, just like we went through it. So in verse 9, you see this, this humanity. Jesus' human name from Nazareth of Galilee, getting baptized in the Jordan River, just like everybody else. But verse 10, immediately coming up from the water, everything completely changes. This is one of those passages that, I, that you almost wish you could see. This is crazy. 10. He saw the heavens parting. King James and New King James don't do a good enough job with this. The heavens parting. Other translations say it better. NIV, it says that they tore open. New Living Translation, splitting apart. When you read that in the Greek, the heavens split. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that would have been. But it have been something pretty impressive. The same word is used to describe the veil that's torn when Christ dies on the cross, ripping from top to bottom. Remember that veil could have been anywhere from a half a foot to a foot and a half thick. That's a big veil. So these heavens are parting. It's not just like on a nice day where you get some really fluffy cumulus clouds and all of a sudden the sun pops through. I don't know, but the sky rips open. And as the sky rips open, what do you see happening? The Spirit descending upon him like a dove. It says in Luke's account of this that the Spirit came down in bodily form like a dove. And then all of a sudden you hear this voice. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. My Son pleased. Would that have not been something to see? So you're sitting in your lawn chair eating some kosher food, watching the baptisms, all of a sudden this guy comes up out of the water just like everybody else, and boom, sky split open, dove landing on him, and a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son whom I am well pleased. You at that moment would stop and say, what's going on? This is not like the other hundred baptisms I've seen today. This is something special. So Jesus, verse 9, is identifying with us. But yet in verses 10 and 11, you see his deity as well. We're going to break that down on why in a second here. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Any quick questions so far about baptism, what we're going through yet? We're good? Okay, yeah, Bethany. It would represent a washing and a repentance and trying to be clean. That's what it would represent. There, there is something in the Jewish, when you go back and read in the law, the idea of ritual cleansings was something that happened a lot. They had a huge basin of water in front of the temple, the tabernacle. And it was not uncommon for these Jews to go through something called a, a mikvah, a mitvah, depending how you say it, where they had these ritual washings. So the idea of being washed to represent being cleansed would have been something very symbolic to them. But this baptism is taking it to another step right here. And what's interesting about baptism, now you've got to be careful here. 
See, you, you have the law, you have Genesis, excuse me, of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the law of Moses. But by this time now, you fast forward a couple thousand years, you have all these extra things that the, that the Jews had added to stuff. And that's what Jesus kind of got frustrated with when he walked this earth. He would stop and say, listen, you're upset at me doing this, but the law says to do good. And you guys have added all these extra rules. You guys know those examples I'm talking about. One of the rules that they had added was that if you were a Gentile, you were supposed to get baptized. If you were a Jew, you wouldn't get baptized. Because as a Jew, you're a Jew. You're a child of Abraham. You've been circumcised. You don't have to go through the dirty thing that the Gentiles are going through. So for Jews to line up to get baptized, it really is showing a humbleness and a repentance and a confession of waiting for the Messiah to come. And that goes back to verse 4, same chapter. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And that's what it was getting ready for. Anybody else got any quick questions about anything? Okay, so I think we need to build a little bit on this idea of permit it so to be fulfill all righteousness. What is actually happening here that Jesus is saying, I want to go through this? And I'm just going to throw out a few points here in no particular order. Jesus getting baptized and all this happening shows that John's ministry has been fulfilled. John's ministry has been fulfilled, and so therefore it shows that John's job is to point people towards the Messiah, Jesus getting baptized, the heavens parting, the Holy Spirit coming down in the form of a dove, and the voice from heaven speaking shows that God shows you have fulfilled your ministry. So right there, it's fulfilled prophecy there. John has fulfilled his ministry. Number two, it identifies with us. This is what we've been talking about. He came down as a man to live as a man to go through what men go through. They got baptized. That's what he did. It's a great witness for the Lord. God is confirming his witness on this man that is also God. And you couldn't miss that if you were sitting there. Once again, if you're sitting there, you're in a little lawn chair watching this, you wouldn't say, oh, that was neat you would realize something majestic and miraculous just happened, the witness of God. And this is one of my opinions, and I always say it three times, opinion. One more time, opinion. If you look in the book of Numbers, it's kind of interesting in Numbers chapter 4, that when a man went into the priesthood ministry, he usually went in around 30. That's the age he'd go in around. And one of the steps was that if you wanted to go into the priesthood ministry, you had to be a descendant of Aaron, but you had a ritual washing before you went into the priesthood ministry. I don't think it's a coincidence that in Luke chapter 3 that the Bible is stressing to us that Jesus was 30 when he started his public ministry. So he's the same age as Numbers 4 of when the priests started their priestly duty and they started out with a washing and Jesus starts out with a washing as well too. Permit it now to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus had every I dotted, he had every T crossed. So that way if someone came and said, oh, you what do you mean, you're supposed to represent me? Well, you didn't go through the baptism. Yeah, I did. You didn't do this. Yeah, I did. Circumcised on the eighth day. I did everything permitted to fulfill all righteousness. And so, therefore, we have a high priest that can relate to us and we can relate to him. That's how much God loves you. Loves you. Now, you have kids at home. You'll do most anything for them. You will. So, if your kid at home wants to just build blocks, you get on the floor and you build blocks with them. Because it's fun for them, and you just are glad to spend time with them. I'm assuming that if you don't have kids at home that like to build blocks, if I'd come into your living room, you're not just sitting on the floor building blocks by yourself. I'm assuming you probably have grown past that a little bit. 
I'm assuming that if you have grandkids at home and they want to go play hide-and-go-seek, that you'll get on your hands and knees and go hide behind the couch, right? Because you want to play with your grandkids. I'm assuming if it's just you and your wife that you're not hiding behind the couch playing, hey, honey, you want to play hide-and-go-seek. I'm assuming you don't do that. Maybe you do. You have a very unique marriage. God bless you. I don't know. The point is you will go down to the level of those kids and grandkids that you love considerably and do anything that looks embarrassing and weird, whatever, because you don't care because you love those kids and grandkids and you'll play whatever they want to play, do whatever they want to do, and you will absolutely just do it. We have this game that we play at home with my boys, and it's called the sleeping game. And it started out when we first started having kids that I was tired. And I said, we're going to play the sleeping game. What's the sleeping game? Daddy pretends to sleep and you try to wake him up. That's the sleeping game. So now, five children later, we're still playing the sleeping game. So I'll say, and they say, Dad, can we play the sleeping game? Now, when they're little, it's fun. They come over and they kind of poke you and whatever. Okay, Tyrus right now is six. He comes over and just wallops you. I mean, it's not restful in any way whatsoever. So if I would come and say, hey, you know, the boys come, Dad, can we play sleeping game? Sure. I go lay down. I pretend to be asleep. And it's this big, long, dramatic, who touched me, whatever. It's just, it's fun. Now, if you come over to my house for a small group, and we're done with small group, and I say, hey, do you guys want to do a game? Sure. We're going to play sleeping game. I'm going to pretend to be asleep, and you come try to wake me up. You would think I'm really weird, and you'd start looking for a new church. Because you would stop and say, I don't relate to that. But when it's your kids and your grandkids, you'll do anything. You have to remember, God is our Father. Christ loves us, and for his kids and grandkids, he'll do whatever he needs to do to relate to us. So he's going to go into the dirty Jordan River with other dirty spiritual people and go through a dirty baptism to be able to relate to us. That's love. And just in a couple weeks, we have set aside December 25th as a day to honor the birth of Jesus Christ. And he was born in a manger. And so therefore... He came down to a dirty, fallen world to be able to represent the love of God to us. Don't ever forget that. So, baptism identifies with us. Now, jump ahead to 12. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. That word for drove him in verse 12 in the Greek is a strong word. Strong word. It's hard to put an English spin on it without it sounding almost unbiblical. It's almost like the Holy Spirit pushed him almost forced him. Not that it was against the will of Christ. See, that's the problem. I don't want to make it sound that way. But this was a driving into the wilderness. Because it would have been really nice after verse 11 just to kind of sit there and say, oh, let's enjoy this. The voice from heaven, the skies parting, Holy Spirit, dove. I'm telling you right now, guys, be careful you don't live on the mountaintop of Christianity. It's great to stay up there, but the real work, the real fruit happens down in the valleys. And sometimes you've got to go down there and you've got to get your hands dirty. And every now and then you run into that Christian that just always wants to stay on the mountaintop. <sighs> no, you, you go into the wilderness sometimes. Remember at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, John, and James are with them. They see Jesus in his glory. It's amazing. Moses appears. Elijah appears. It's this great moment. It's so great that Peter says, let's build three booths up here. Let's stay up here. Now we need to go back down. And they get down at the bottom of the mountain. What's waiting for them? A demon-possessed child. I have learned, and I'm still learning after doing this for a while, that when there is a mountaintop experience, oh, I, I, I enjoy it. 
But I also in the back of my mind saying, I'm also going to be driven in the wilderness too. I'm also going to have a demon-possessed child waiting for me at the bottom of the mountain. This is the reality. A strong, healthy marriage in the Lord learns how to handle the mountaintop experiences and the valleys too. A strong, mature believer learns how to handle the days of devotions where you feel like it's just all there and you get it, you understand it. The worship, the teaching, the prayer, you get it. Followed by days of devotion of I read and it's like, I don't know if I got anything out of this. You will. Don't worry. There's still fruit in the valley. Just be careful you're not chasing mountaintop experiences. So Jesus is driven into the wilderness. We, we really don't understand wilderness around here in northwest Ohio. There is no wilderness. I mean, you could go in the middle of the corn stubble right now, and you'd be a half mile from a road. That's the closest we got. If anybody's ever traveled out west, you know out west you get into some wilderness. But this is a wilderness that we're really not used to. This is a wilderness of life and death wilderness. This is a rough area over there. And he's in that wilderness, verse 13, for 40 days. 40 days. And we know for 40 days that he didn't eat. Now, this is not the only guy in the Bible that went through a 40-day fast. Moses went through a 40-day fast in Exodus 34. Elijah went through a 40-day fast in 1 Kings 19. It's a great little time to talk about fasting real quick. Fasting is a time where you let go of the fleshly and you focus on the spiritual. You are facing something really big, and you really say, Lord, I really want this to be focused on you. What do I do? Skip a meal. That time you were to take to prepare the meal, the time you were to take to eat the meal, you just focus in prayer. You focus on the Lord. You focus on the scriptures. You focus on the word. I highly encourage you, get a regular pattern of fasting set up in your life. I really encourage you. Fast when you don't even know if you need to fast. You're going to fast in preparation for wisdom, guidance, direction of the Lord. It's a great way to grow deeper in your, in your walk with Christ. It really is. And so I encourage you to have that time of fasting. You focus on the spirit and not the flesh. Now, 40 days? That's pushing the limits of the human body can endure. That's why it's really fascinating. In the other gospel accounts, uh, especially Luke's account, remember Luke was the physician, it says that after 40 days he was hungry. Well, that's like the biggest understatement of the year. My boys get hungry after 40 minutes. Okay, 40 days? Because what it's saying is, it's interesting, and I've never experienced this. I only can tell you what I've read. That when you go on an extended fast for days and days and turns into weeks, that your body starts to shut down and to be sounds like you kind of reach the point where maybe you're not as hungry as you think you're going to be. But then you get really hungry. And when you get really hungry the second time, that's your body's way of saying eat or die. So when it says that Jesus was hungry after 40 days, this now is literally is life or death. And guess who happens to show up at that time? Satan. And he saints just got a really simple idea. Stones to bread. No big deal. Now, what's the problem with stones to bread? The problem with stones to bread is this. Jesus never used his miraculous powers for his own advancement and his own cause, if you will. It was always done for the glory of the Lord. He just didn't wake up in the morning and say, I don't feel like making breakfast, snapped his fingers and said, here it is. So basically what Satan was doing was trying to tempt Jesus, trying to test Jesus to say, listen, use your powers for your own good. Now, that word temptation is an interesting word. It's maybe not the best translation because it literally means tested. Jesus wasn't tempted like we were tempted in that sense. But it was a test for him. He was a human being in that context. He, he struggled with hunger. And just imagine being hungry. I mean, just imagine being hungry. 
Now, I, I don't think I get this way. You know, check with Dawn. She may disagree with you. I'm the type of guy that when I get hungry, I don't think I get upset. I know some of you. When you guys get hungry, you just get mean. I mean, you just kind of like, it's really mean. I heard somebody just coined this term the other day, and maybe you guys know this term. They took the word hungry and angry and put it together, and they called it hangry. And I thought, I'm using that because that's dawn. God bless her, but that's a dawn. That's a dawn. I'm just going to go through my kids. That's a dawn, and that's Elias for sure. Firstborns, pray for them. That's all I can tell you. Just pray for the firstborns. Some people, when they get hungry, it gets really upsetting to Jesus. Can you imagine after 40 days of not eating and all of a sudden just simply turn stones to bread? You got to remember here the testing that he went through. And this is why these verses are once again up here. Look at the second part there of Hebrews 2.17. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, being tested, he's able to aid those who are tempted, able to be aid those who are tested. He knows what you're going through. He knows... First one, Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was all points tempted, tested as we are, yet without sin. He did these things to identify with us. Identify with us. Now, I think it's kind of interesting, too, when you talk about the temptation of Jesus. Mark hints at this a little bit. He was in the wilderness 40 days tempted. You see this in the other gospel accounts. We have a tendency to look at the temptation of Jesus. We just basically say there's three temptations. If you read it, it sounds like this may have been temptations that were going on for 40 days. And what happens is the Bible highlights three of them to represent more. I I can't say that as a definitive fact, but when you study this out and read this, it kind of sounds like it's this 40 days of temptation that's going on. And you guys know the three temptations that he faced. He faced the idea of a stone to bread. He faced the idea of, here's the kingdoms of the world. You can have them just bow down and worship me. Jump off the top of the temple knowing the angels will save you. Those are the temptations he faced. And we just went through 1 John, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But if you remember in 1 John chapter 2, the Bible says that sin is divided up into these three categories. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Every sin you battle is either lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. You see that with Jesus. Lust of the flesh, stone to bread. Lust of the eyes, here are the kingdoms of the world. Pride of life, jump off the temple. And it lines perfectly with Genesis 3 when Eve and Adam were tempted. Because they saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh. It was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes. And desire to make one wise, pride of life. So the three areas in which mankind fell are the three areas of sin that still affect us today, which are the three areas of sin that Jesus defeated in the wilderness. Going back to our verses again, we now have a high priest that was in all points tempted as we are, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, but look at those three words, yet without sin. So when you are facing that temptation and you have convinced yourself, I can't say no, Jesus says, yeah, you can, because I was there and I said no. And I will give you the strength and power to say no. This is why it's so important that we understand how he identified with us. What else do we see him happening here in verse 13? He was with the wild beasts. The wild beasts. Once again, that's not really a threat that we have around here that we have to worry about. Maybe there's a stray skunk you need to worry about. Maybe there's a couple coyotes back by our house that walk the creek. But nothing too awful concerning. You get to certain places in the U.S., you've got a few more things you have to worry about. But to be in the middle of the wilderness for 40 days, physically being weak, 
there would be much more things that you have to deal with. And the angels minister to him. This is also repeated in the Matthew's account of this. The angels minister to him. Now, that may sound like he cheated. Do you realize how often the angels minister to you? The Bible makes it clear in Psalm 91 that he will give his angels charge over you. There, there is a heavenly angelic realm going on that we don't even realize and we don't even see. And there's puzzle pieces being moved around here. And the Bible says after this time of temptation, testing in the wilderness, that the angels came and ministered to him. Why did he go through it? He went through it to identify with us. That's the key word for tonight. So I want to just remind you, when you're staying up late at night and you have reached a point of discouragement, despair, depression, because no one understands you, no one knows what you're going through, no one, please remember these verses. Please remember the high priest you have that can identify with you, that says, I'm here to help you, that I'm here to be your Savior. And this is why he went through the baptism. This is why he went through the wilderness. This is why he went through the temptation. It proved who he was. It proved he was God in human form. We see that. But it also shows now I can minister to you in ways that other people can't. You know, every other world religion presents their gods as these unapproachable gods that almost look down upon man in this discouraging, disparaging way. Christianity is so unique that God became man. And God said, I want to live with you. It's really neat, and I've been, been praying about Christmas messages here as we get closer. There's this really interesting word in the Gospels where it says that God visited us. Think about that. It's just a fascinating idea. And so here is Jesus Christ that said, I'm going to go through these things. And I'm going to go through these things to be able to love these people better, minister to these people, sympathize with these people. I'm going to be in all points tempted, tested as they were, but yet without sin. I got one more point here I want to make before we close up. Any quick questions about anything here? John. Yeah. That one's a little. Possible. It says in Matthew's account, they worded it a little differently. In Matthew's account, it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. That Matthew account seems to see that the angels came at the end. Yeah, he can. And it's interesting. Yeah, not omnipresent. Yeah, it's easy for you to say. Right. Right. And, and that's where, it's like I said, I want to be careful on that point. But when you do read it, it does sound like that maybe this was going on for the 40 days there. And the angels as well. We don't know. Matthew says they seem to come at the end. Real neat point, though, about you said about Satan coming and going. Um, in Luke 4, it says, now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan basically stops and says, OK, I lost, but I'm coming back again. And, and that's, that's what the enemy does. And I wish this is something I wish we could realize as believers, okay? You, you may have had a sin that you have really struggled with, okay? And you have now tasted victory in that sin. Amen. What I have noticed in my life is this. There's something I really struggle with. And the enemy will do everything he can to make me fall. And he fights and he fights and he fights. And I fight and fight in the spirit and prayer and fasting and everything tool that God has given me. And then I come out victorious, Satan says, okay, I'll back off for a while. And I'll wait till a more opportune time. Now, how does he know it's an opportune time? He's been watching human nature for 6,000 years. He, bet, he knows humans better than we know humans. And he knows there's a little dent in James's armor 
that James probably doesn't even see yet. And I'm going to exploit that. And there's been times where I have walked victorious in sins for maybe weeks, months, dare I say years. Then it's like, where did this come from now? It's a battle. And if you remember correctly also, there's this great parable where Jesus tells the parable about the man that had demons in him. And the demons are cast out. And the demons left and the man gets his house in order. And then the demons come back, see the house's order, and they come back with even more demons. To me, that's a picture of this. You may have had a a sin that has controlled your life, and now you have victory in that sin. Now, you spent all your time dwelling on that sin, thinking on that sin, planning that sin, and whatever you want that sin to be, that's what you dwelled on. That sin is now gone. You have now left a vacuum in your spiritual life. So now what happens is you used to stay up late at night on the computer looking at things you shouldn't have looked at. So you don't do that anymore. So now you get in front of your computer and you're bored. I don't know what to look at. There's a vacuum. So instead of filling that vacuum with good, godly, spiritual things, we allow that vacuum to get bigger. Next thing you know, the enemy comes back and says, well, if you're not going to fill it with anything good, I'll just come back even stronger. That's why it's so vitally important. And if you as a believer have tasted victory in a sin, whatever that sin used to be that used to control you with that mind, you need to now fill that with the good godly things. That's what Philippians 4.8 is saying. Meditate on these things. So therefore, if you were a constant worrier and your mind always was on worry and now it's not, then you need to fill your mind now with worship and praise and to God the glory in the verses. Because if not, your mind's going to go back to where it wants to go. If you used to go to the bar every single day after work and now all of a sudden you don't, you got extra time, fill it with something good, godly, and glorifying. If not, you're going to go right back to the same spot that you were. This is why sometimes people will come into my office and say, I don't know what happened. I haven't struggled with X, Y, or Z for weeks now, and all of a sudden it's right back. Okay, did you, did you fill the empty spot with something good and God-glorifying? Well, not really. Okay, then the parable says it's going to come back even worse. It's got to come back even worse. So therefore, it's so important to realize that Satan will wait for a more opportune time. It will happen in your marriage. It will happen in your personal life. It will happen in ministry. It will happen in church. He'll back off for a second, let you have a little bit of victory. He says, okay, now I'm waiting at the bottom of the mountain again. This is why sometimes believers are on these roller coasters where they have days, weeks, months of everything's great and then days, weeks, months where everything's awful. Then they're back up and then they're back down. The enemy says, I'll just wait for a more opportune time. Anybody else have a question about anything here before we get to the final point? All right, this is what I want to finish with. Just remember the last part of Hebrews 4, 15, and 16. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was tested. We went over this. Identifies with us, yet without sin. What are we supposed to do with this information? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Since you know this now, when you are in need, you go right to Jesus. If you are here tonight and you're born again and saved, you have an open door to the throne of grace. Once again, it's not that the Lord can't use the body of Christ to minister and to help. He can and He does and we will. But the most important thing you can do is go right to the Lord who says, I understand better than anybody. We've all been down this path before where we're struggling with something and we go to somebody expecting them to understand and they don't. And then we walk away bothered. 
I opened up my heart to him, and he didn't get it. I opened up my heart to her, and she didn't get it, what have you. Guys, make sure you open your heart to men, and girls, open your heart to women. But the point is, we open up our heart, and they don't understand, they don't get it, and then we walk away feeling worse. I've had this happen. I come home, I'm upset about something, and I say, Dawn, you won't believe. And I tell her everything. And Dawn's job, it's not in the Bible, but it's her job to agree with everything I say and just say, you're right, James, you're right, James. She hasn't learned that yet. So sometimes I'll say, Dawn, this is what happened, expecting her to see it from my perspective, my point of view. And then she has the audacity to bring in a different point. And then I walk away upset. Why? Because I probably should have just took it to the throne of grace and let the Holy Spirit convict me. And then what happens is we get upset because our spouse, our kids, our friends, our pastor, or whatever, they didn't understand, they didn't see it. Because we don't. We don't understand. We don't see it. We try. But ultimately, it's Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to remember. We take it to Christ there. And he allows it to be used because he says, I went through it to identify with you. So remember the baptism and the testing of Christ there to identify with us, shows his deity, shows who he is, the power of God. And after that, now we can get into verse 14 next week. We get into the beginning of the public ministry of Christ and the calling of the disciples. And it's a wonderful time there. So just remember, real quick, no church on the 26th, two weeks from tonight. A lot of events coming up, 15th. we got the praise night this coming Saturday at 7, Christmas Eve service, the 4.30 on the 24th. Uh, 25th from 11 to 1, Dawn and I will be out here with the kids and stuff, and we're going to have lunch. Um, prayerfully get involved with those ministries we want to get involved with. Hey, would you guys stand with me as we pray? Let's pray this into our lives. Lord, as we just come to you now, help us to understand the high priest that's there to help us and to sympathize with us and love us. Lord, thank you for being a God that cares. And Lord, help us not just to know this, to think this, but to really go out and live this out in all ways and all things. You are the God that hears and cares. And we say thank you, Lord. Thank you for everything you do to minister to us and help us to turn to you into that throne of grace. We praise you, Lord, in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week and God bless.